everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of our Banking Litigation Podcast. I'm Kerry Morgan, a professional support consultant in our Banking Litigation team. And today, I'll be stepping into the shoes of John Corey and taking on the role of your podcast host. Today's episode is one of our special edition podcasts in which we'll be delving into the perennial favourite, Privilege. In particular, we'll be considering some of the key issues that are likely to be of interest or concern to in-house lawyers at banks. Joining me are Benedict Perone and Claire Nicholas, who are both senior associates in our FSR and banking litigation teams, respectively. Hello to you both. Hi, Kerry, and hello, podcasters. Hi, everyone. Uh, so before we start, I should say that this isn't going to be a back-to-basics privilege podcast. We're sure this will be a very familiar topic to our listeners. Instead, we're going to focus on a few key privilege issues, which we think are most relevant to in-house lawyers at banks. Claire and I are going to cover the thorny issue of who the client is for privilege purposes and how that affects things like information gathering. And Benedict, our financial regulatory expert, will then talk about privilege in a regulatory context. So I'm going to kick off with one of the key issues arising in relation to legal advice privilege. Our, as our listeners will know, for legal advice privilege to apply, you need a lawyer-client communication for the dominant purpose of giving or obtaining legal advice. And that may sound straightforward, but we all know that it isn't, particularly in light of the case law that has complicated the question of who the client is for these purposes. Looking at that question in more detail, who is the client? Now, if you have an individual client, it's very simple. The individual client possesses information in his or her or their head and instructs the lawyers. No problem there. Their communications with the lawyers will be privileged, whether they are providing um, relevant information so that they can advise or giving instructions or receiving advice. But when you have a company like a bank or other financial institution, things get much more complicated. I'm guessing this is where the infamous Three Rivers Number 5 decision comes in. Yeah, indeed, Claire. So until that case, most lawyers would have said that the client in a corporate context was any employee of the company or perhaps anyone who could be expected to communicate with the lawyers on behalf of the company. But the Court of Appeal threw a spanner in the works. It held that the client was limited to a committee of three bank officials who were responsible for coordinating communications with external lawyers in relation to the Bingham Bingham inquiry into the collapse of BCCI. There was no privilege in documents created by other employees as they were treated as being third parties rather than part of the client. So all of their documents had to be disclosed in subsequent litigation brought against the bank by the liquidators of BCCI. The Court of Appeals decision was widely criticised. The House of Lords refused permission to appeal against the decision, rather surprisingly. But then when the case went to the House of Lords, but on a different point, the court heard full argument on the client point but then unhelpfully declined to express a view about it as it would not have been binding. But Lord Carswell in particular said that he was uh, not to be taken as having approved of the decision. 
And for 13 years, there was not, to my knowledge at least, a single reported English decision in which a similar narrow view of the client was applied to restrict the application of legal advice privilege. So we all began to think that the case might be restricted to its rather unusual facts, though there was always the risk that it could be dusted off and applied by the court at any time. And that did actually happen, didn't it, Kerry? Yeah, that's right. So from about late 2016 onwards, uh, in a number of cases, including the RBS rights issue litigation, the court had to consider the status of solicitors' interviews with employees of the client company, uh, where the interviews were not for the dominant purpose of litigation, because if that were the case, then litigation privilege would have been available. So in these cases, the court held the interviews were not covered by legal advice privilege as the employees in question did not form part of the client for privilege purposes. Three Rivers number five was interpreted to mean that the client was limited to those authorised to seek and obtain legal advice on behalf of the company and crucially, authority to provide information to the lawyers did not count for these purposes. Then the Court of Appeal in SFO and ENRC agreed with that interpretation, though without any enthusiasm. Essentially, the Court of Appeal said it would have departed from Three Rivers Number 5 if free to do so, but the decision was, of course, binding on it. And so legal advice privilege is limited to those tasks with seeking or obtaining legal advice on behalf of the company. One point the Court of Appeal made in SFO and ENRC was that this definition of client puts large companies at a disadvantage when it comes to legal advice privilege compared to individuals and small companies. Those tasked with seeking legal advice on behalf of a large company are less likely to have the relevant factual information and will therefore have to rely upon employees whose communications with the lawyers will not on the, re- on the reasoning in Three Rivers number five, be covered by privilege, unless litigation of privilege applies. The Court of Appeal also accepted that English law is out of step with the international common law on this issue, which it considered undesirable. However, as the court was bound by Three Rivers number five, any departure from that approach will have to wait for the Supreme Court. And Claire, I think you were going to take it from here and explain some of the further issues that arise in relation to legal advice privilege. Absolutely. So Kerry has looked at the who is the client problem. Another problem arising out of the Three Rivers Number 5 decision is the need for communication. Three Rivers Number 5 shows that documents repaired for the purpose of obtaining legal advice, but which are not lawyer-client communications, are not privileged, even if prepared by the client. Could you provide an example of that, Claire? Yes, of course. So let's assume we have two individuals within the client. A asks B to prepare some information for the lawyers. B emails A with that information or prepares a standalone document which he sends to A. This may not be privileged under a strict application of the test in Three Rivers as it's not a lawyer-client communication. It may be possible to analyse this as a communication by the client to the lawyer through an agent, but this is pretty messy and uncertain. And if you're talking about a document review maybe years later, it isn't always going to be apparent that this was the chain of events. So, Claire, was any of this affected by the RBS and ENRC decisions? 
No, but it's important not to lose sight of the importance of the communication requirement. In other words, even if you're confident you've got the client for the purposes of legal advice privilege, on a narrow interpretation, that person shouldn't go around producing freestanding notes and communications with other employees, even client employees, and assuming they'll be privileged. Let's look at another illustration of the problem. Let's assume you have the board asking for a report from in-house legal on the company's potential exposure in relation to some problem that has just emerged. And let's assume for these purposes that litigation is not in reasonable contemplation at this stage, and so we're looking solely at legal advice privilege. The in-house lawyer then reaches out to one or perhaps several managers on the ground in the relevant area of the business to ask for information so that he or she can advise. That manager then reaches out to two team members to find out more information and they send emails and information back to the manager. The manager then summarizes their findings and puts them in an email back to the in-house lawyer and the lawyer then puts together a report based on that email and sends it to the board. I can see where you're going with this scenario. So the easiest call to make is on the request that came into the lawyer and their report back to the board. Presumably, they are both going to be protected by legal advice privilege because they are confidential lawyer-client communications. But what about the other communications in this chain? Well, I don't think the communications between the manager and the team members can be privileged as there is no lawyer-client communication. And what about the communications between the lawyer and the manager? Well, on the face of it, you might think that the lawyer's request for information from the manager and the response back appear to tick the box of being lawyer-client communication. It feels like this should be privileged as it involves the in-house lawyer. But who's the client in this scenario? The board is clearly the client as they requested the report. The manager has simply been approached by the lawyer to obtain more information on the matter to enable the lawyer to advise. On the basis of the recent decisions, it would not be enough that the manager is communicating with the lawyer if their role is simply to provide information. They have to be seeking and obtaining legal advice, which it seems they aren't doing. This means that even though the manager has information that is relevant to the advice, their communications with the lawyer will not be privileged unless under the head of litigation privilege. Interesting. Thanks, Claire. And I suppose that in other situations, that same manager might well be the in-house lawyer's client. Yes. The key question is who within the organisation is tasked with seeking the lawyer's advice in relation to a particular matter? So if this manager comes across a legal issue on which he needs advice and he emails the in-house lawyer to ask for that advice, then the emails back and forth between the manager and the lawyer will clearly be privileged. And I should say that will be the case even if they don't all say, please advise me and my advice is. Legal advice privilege will apply quite broadly to protect the continuum of communication back and forth so that the lawyer can advise and the client can give instructions. And so it will cover reports of merely factual information, for instance, so long as those are in communications between the lawyer and client. But if there's another member of the operational team, but he or she is not tasked with obtaining the legal advice on this issue, any communications with that individual, whether by the lawyer or by the client, will not be privileged. This issue is illustrated by the decision in Glaxo, Wellcome and Sandoz. 
In this case, Chief Master Marsh rejected a claim to privilege over an in-house lawyer's communications with an employee of the business, where those communications were to seek and obtain information to provide to external solicitors in order to obtain their legal advice. The external lawyers were advising on IP issues, and the employee was providing information to the in-house lawyer, which she was then passing on to the external lawyers that they could advise. Significantly, it's clear from the decision that this employee was considered to be the in-house lawyer's client for some purposes. The claim to privilege over other emails between them was accepted. That's interesting. So you mean that an individual can be a lawyer's client for one purpose, but not the others? Yes, exactly. And it shows the need to consider which lawyer is actually advising. In-house lawyers sometimes ask whether they will be able to communicate with employees on a privileged basis to get information from them, even if those employees might not be considered to be an external lawyer's client. This decision shows that that would be a very dangerous assumption. Where it's the external lawyer rather than the in-house lawyer who is advising, the internal lawyer's information gathering exercise won't be privileged unless, probably, the individuals from whom the information is sought are clients of the external lawyer. The position may be improved if the in-house lawyer is also advising as well as the external lawyer. But even then, being able to assert privilege will depend on the individual providing the information being seen as the in-house lawyer's client for that purpose. Thank you for that, Claire. It's not easy, is it? Um, so moving on then, I'll hand over to Benedict, who's going to talk to us about privilege in the regulatory context. Thanks, Kerry. So as most of our listeners will know, regulated firms are required to deal with their regulators in an open and cooperative way and disclose appropriately anything relating to the firm of which that regulator would reasonably expect notice. The FCA also specifies other scenarios which require notification. For example, if the firm becomes aware or they have information which reasonably suggests that a matter has occurred which will have a serious regulatory impact, for example, a matter which could have significant adverse impact on the firm's reputation, or if any matter in respect of the firm which could result in the serious financial consequences to the UK financial system or to other firms. Where relevant, any investigation should be set up to protect privilege where possible. A regulator cannot penalise a firm for failing to cooperate as a result of maintaining privilege. However, the ongoing regulatory relationship will provide important context to his decision on whether to waive privilege or not. In the regulatory context, issues can arise in relation to the documentation of internal investigations, for example, and an attempt to establish privilege umbrellas over the entirety of an internal investigation may fail. The FCA have previously said that firms need to take care when conducting internal investigations and not to let privilege become an unnecessary barrier to sharing the output with the FCA. With care, it should be possible to strike the right balance. For example, take interviews of employees. The FCA may find an attempt to shroud the interview in privilege unhelpful. So careful thought should be given in advance to the preparation of any interview notes. It is the FCA's view that a firm will not gain the full benefits of their internal investigation if they are not fully transparent with the regulator. In many instances, therefore, it's appropriate for firms to engage in early communications with the FCA regarding a proposed internal investigation and avoid steps that would obstruct any FCA investigation. 
So would litigation privilege apply in uh, an FCA investigation scenario? That's a really good question, and it remains untested before the courts. As you know, for the purposes of litigation privilege, litigation means adversarial proceedings rather than proceedings which are essentially administrative or fact-finding. In the regulatory context, the position is not always so clear and the distinction between legal proceedings and inquisitorial or fact-finding is not always easy to draw. The nature of some inquiries or investigations may change from merely fact-finding to adversarial during the course of the process and therefore privilege may be available for documents produced for the later stages. In practice, however, identifying the boundary can be difficult. In the criminal context, we know from the SFO and ENRC case that a criminal investigation does not count as litigation for these purposes. Litigation privilege will only apply if a criminal prosecution is in reasonable prospect. This might be a good way to think about what's likely to amount to litigation in the regulatory context as well, i.e. what in the particular regulatory context is akin to a prosecution rather than to an investigation. Another issue is that any internal investigation will usually be conducted for a variety of different reasons, not just any future litigation. So this can pose problems for the satisfaction of the dominant purpose test. Benedict, what's the position on whether a regulator can demand privileged material? So I've started to touch on this already. There was a recent case, Sports Direct and the Financial Reporting Council, in which the court held at first instance that an audit client served with a notice requiring production of documents by its auditor's regulator could not withhold those documents on the ground of privilege. The judge followed a line of authority, including the House of Lords decision in Morgan Grenfell, which says the client's privilege isn't being infringed as the regulator wasn't entitled to use the information for any purpose other than the investigation. So it can't use it against the client, only the auditor. It's worth pausing there to say that there was a carve out in the applicable regulations for information or documents which a person would be entitled to refuse to provide or produce in proceedings in the High Court on the grounds of legal professional privilege. In the judge's view, you didn't need to look at that as the audit client's privilege wasn't being infringed. That was of some concern, particularly in contexts where the client might also be a regulated entity, particularly where it's by the same regulator. Fortunately, the Court of Appeal overturned the decision. So the position now is that a regulator can't demand privileged material, whether the privilege is that of the person being investigated or that person's client, unless the regulator's statutory powers override privilege expressly or by necessary implication. Benedict, so in this sort of scenario, who is supposed to make the call on whether the document is privileged? Is it the party under investigation or the client? It's interesting that you should ask that question, Kerry, as it was considered in the recent decision in A and B. In this case, the issue arose in the context of an auditor required to produce documents to its regulator, the Financial Reporting Council. The FRC sought disclosure from the auditor of documents belonging to the auditor's clients and over which the client claimed privilege. However, there was a dispute between the auditor and its client as to whether the documents were, in fact, privileged. Importantly, the court held that the auditor must form its own view on whether documents are privileged and can therefore be withheld on that ground, 
regardless of whether the privilege is that of the auditor or its underlying client. It considered that the duty to disclose was on the auditor and disclosure could only be refused on the grounds that a document was actually privileged. Mere assertion of privilege by the client was insufficient. In the context of the FCA's powers to compel a regulated person to disclose documents, the question would be whether the client's documents are protected items under Section 413 of FISMA. Following the decision in Sports Direct, there could be no argument that disclosure of the documents, if indeed subject to privilege, would not amount to infringement of the client's privilege, or that the client's privilege has been lost by providing those documents on a limited waiver basis to the regulated person. However, the same question may arise as to which party is required to determine where the privilege attaches to the documents in question. The decision suggests that the regulated person cannot refuse to produce documents on the grounds that a claim to privilege has been asserted or could be asserted by a client or other third party to whom duties of confidentiality are owed. The regulated person must take its own view on the privilege claim. Thank you for that, Benedict. Um, before we finish, I just wanted to quickly plug our English Law Legal Privilege web-based app. Uh, it's a really helpful tool which uh, guides users through a series of questions and then uses the answers to analyse whether a document is likely to be covered by legal advice privilege or litigation privilege. A link to this tool can be found in the show notes. So all that's left for me to say is a thank you to our special guests today, Claire and Benedict, and to say thank you to you all for listening. Uh, what else can I say except it's been a privilege? Mm-hmm.